Hello and welcome back to Science on Trial and Error. I'm Kasia Kuzmichkowalska and I'm the host of this podcast. Thank you for joining me for another episode. I'm so excited that it's already the fifth one. Before we begin the interview, I'd like to say thank you to all of you who follow the podcast channels on different platforms. I would be very grateful if you could share the episodes with your friends and colleagues and help spread the news. Today my guest is Matt Sikora. Matt comes from Poland. He's a biophysicist and a postdoc with a dual affiliation at Max Planck Institute for Biophysics in Frankfurt and at the University of Vienna. He currently investigates an extremely timely topic. He uses simulations to gain insights into the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2 virus. This work is important for both understanding the virus infectivity and the development of new strategies and vaccines. And believe me, Matt explains it in layman's terms. Prior to his current position, Matt obtained his PhD degree in biophysics from Institute of Physics of Polish Academy of Sciences in Warsaw. And then he became a postdoc in the group of C.P. Heisenberg at IST Austria. I've gotten to know Matt through his wife, Anja, and they are both amazing. Matt's scientific resume is most impressive, and his path has been in some sense unusual, with theory and experimental work getting more and more intertwined with every step. Now he plans to start his own group, and I'm certain that he will succeed. I'm very happy that Matt joined me to tell his story, discuss the importance of work-life balance, and share his perspective on how to improve academia. Regardless of your current career stage, I think you will find our conversation useful when looking for your own way in science. Enjoy, and please welcome Matt Shikora. Hi, Matt. Uh, welcome. welcome to my podcast. Thank you for accepting the invitation. Hello, thank you for the invitation and uh, hello to you, hello to the listeners. Exactly, hello to the listeners and today a guest who who is a postdoc and who is working on a very, very timely topic currently. So I was thinking maybe we can we can start with that. A big story really and yeah, something that <laughs> I could say relates to all of us. Uh, so I would like to find out more about that. What I already... Now is that you have been working on the spike protein of, of coronavirus. And let me try to put it maybe in a bit more context. The spike proteins are the surface proteins that are responsible for targeting the cells and also entry of the virus to the cell, right? Yes, basically the virus-host interactions. Exactly. And this is also the main focus of the vaccination development and and the efforts that, that are made in this direction. You were developing simulations for this, for the modeling. So can you maybe explain what what exactly were you looking for and how did you get involved in this? Yeah, this was a very, very romantic story, actually, how, how this whole thing started. Uh, so before I, I've been working on the simulations of, on, of the adhesion proteins, uh, which are in the membrane, they're uh, mediating interactions with between the cells. 
and uh, I've been I've been working on that for a long time. I created a big simulation model. I could explain the adhesion between the between the cells. And then when the pandemic started, uh, my first thought was, okay, so the virus has to interact with the cells, and uh, how virus cell interaction can be different from the cell cell interaction. It could be that part. We started very early. We started already. I think in in February we had the first mm-hmm. discussion that it would be great to uh, assemble a special task force at the Max Planck Institute of Biophysics in Frankfurt, where we gathered uh, specialists in different subdisciplines of, this, of the nuclear simulations. And we were just brainstorming what we can do and uh, how we can help in, in this situation. And we had people that are great in the membrane simulations, big protein simulations, uh, protein-protein interactions. Uh, so this was all like a very good team that mm-hmm. could uh, tackle uh, the spike protein. And as you said, the spike protein is mediating the entry to the, to the whole cell. So anything that targets the, the, the spike protein is actually great because we, we can interact with this, we can block it, then we can block the infection, right? So this was yeah. the very, very beginning of the, of the story. You you were trying to understand what's the structure of the of the spike protein, and I think what you found out is that it's actually very dynamic, right? This first structure of the of the protein, because for the simulations you need to have a, some kind of atomistic structure of mm-hmm. the protein that you want to study, and this we were lucky because this, the spike protein has been crystallized, and there were also cryogenic structures very early. Already in February, there were few structures. Okay which were, however, only targeting the very tip of the spike protein, which was easy to express. So the, the, the groups with, that were studying it, they basically cleaved off everything else. The structure of the, of the head of the spike was there. Mm-hmm. And you have to imagine that the spike protein is like a lollipop. It has a big bulky head and it's somehow attached to the viral membrane. So this, this lollipop per se was, was known, but how it's connected to the membrane was absolutely unclear. And we, we decided to model that, and we used some bioinformatic predictions to, to model how this is anchored to the membrane and what are the sections which are basically connecting this lollipop to the membrane. I mean, the predictions were clearly showing flexible joints between very stiff elements. And that's why we coined the names, uh, the leg of the spike, and uh, we call it uh, hip, uh, knee, and ankle, the, the joints yeah. that we found in the, in the simulations. Yeah, and we got a big grant on the, the Supercomputing Center, uh, SuperMOOC in Munich, and we could use 20 millions of, of uh, core hours to, to actually do the simulations because the systems that we are talking about are huge. Mm-hmm. We had uh, around 4 million atoms, which is upper-class simulation. It's quite big, and we, we needed to simulate it for a very long time, and this required considerable computational resources. And the, the story is very convergent because, meanwhile, the uh, Beck group at EMBL at the time obtained the very high quality uh, cryo-electron tomography images of the whole uh, viruses, whole periods. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were trying to do the subtomal averaging to get the high resolution structure of that, but they were puzzled by the, the this, this huge mobility of the connector, which yeah. they couldn't solve because this was always mobile and, and averaging was leading to a completely blurred structure they couldn't resolve. And they contacted us, and uh, at this point we started working together, and we could immediately explain why they cannot uh, see this leg because every yeah. copy of, of the spike had a different angle between the joints, and this was the whole issue. And uh, we managed to put a very nice story together, and uh, yeah. So, what does this flexibility mean actually for the infectivity of the virus? Yeah, so we have some some ideas why the virus wants to have this leg flexible. 
Because if you look at the, the whole class of the viruses, which are similar to the SARS-CoV-2, mm-hmm. and the leg structure is very conserved, which means that for some reason, they prefer to have these uh, sections which are stiff and then joints between them. And our speculation is that if you imagine that uh, the round virus, which is rather tiny, is approaching the cell, which is uh, several micrometers in diameter. So the, for the virus, is like a flat football pitch. Mm-hmm. And if, if you would have uh, uh, one receptor on the cell and you would have high curvature uh, virus surface, you could only interact with this one uh, protein because otherwise the rest would be just pointing outside of, the, yeah. of your spike proteins. And if you can bend it, so you can retract some of the spikes and then protrude more of the, some of the spikes, you can have multiple interactions. So in that sense, you can increase the avidity of the, of the virus by attaching to multiple um, ACE2 receptors. Whether this is the case, we are still waiting for somebody to confirm it. And uh, we're actually working on some simulations that could help with that. Uh, but we don't know for sure. I see. And I was wondering if, if your work, if your simulations can actually help with the emergence of the new mutations. A lot of them are actually localized within the, the spike sequence. Can your simulations help with understanding how these mutations work or with designing new strategies? I mean, definitely designing new strategies is something we, we've been already discussing for a while, uh, how we could answer to the new mutations. And I think there is, it becomes clear that the um, escape mutation is only a matter of time and we will have a new wave of the virus, which is not um, you know, responding to the, to the vaccines, which is pretty bad. So it's very important to be prepared for it. The simulations can help. Uh, you could actually rerun the whole simulations and, and try to understand if the certain uh, mutation is affecting uh, I know, stability of the spike, how it's exposed and so on. The, the more practical way for, to look at it is to look for the p- potential epitopes that we can use to uh, target the spike protein mm-hmm. in the vaccines or in the antibody treatments. Because the mutations will be affecting the affinity to the AC2 receptor, the main partner of interaction of the spike protein, but they are not affecting so much the exposure of the pieces of the of the spike protein. Yeah. And so if we find a good strategy that we can use to target parts of the of the virus which are not uh, susceptible to to change, because some parts are very conserved, then we could actually end up with the vaccine which is resistant to the escape mutations. Now, at this point, I have to make a small detour and uh, tell you about the uh, glycosylation. The spike protein is not only, not only the protein, but it's also covered with the sugars. Uh, the sugars are called glycans. Yeah. And the, the spike protein, the virus is actually hijacking the human machinery of the post-translational modification of the protein and is covering its surface with very big uh, branched sugars, which have a main role in preventing the interactions with the human immune system. So they cannot be too immunogenic because otherwise we would be autoimmune all the time because we are also using these glycans to recover our proteins. And this is a very good strategy by the virus because if it's it's covered, then it becomes basically invisible to the immune system. So it's like a shield. It's like a shield, yes. Yes. And uh, you can imagine that this shield is uh, very mobile. So it's not like one wire of the sugar, you know, sticking out one direction and the other one the other direction. Uh, the sugars are basically moving like a, like a sweepers on the, on the windshield in your car. At any given moment, you'd only see one line. But mm-hmm. essentially, if you average over time, they are very effective in cleaning the, the surface. They are everywhere. Yeah. And this is the same with the, with the sugars. They are sweeping the surface of the virus all the time. 
and this makes the binding of the antibodies very difficult because at any given time there's uh, some sugar interfering with the with the binding. And the idea is to find uh, places which are not very effectively shielded by the glycans and find them in positions which are not close to this domain which is used by the virus to bind to the AC2 receptor. Because this domain, surprisingly as it sounds, uh, is actually the most uh, variable. So the, there is some motif which is binding the, the AC2 receptor, but the rest of this domain it acts like a decoy. So it's actually attracting the antibodies because it's very exposed and it has very flexible loops, which are easy to bind, but can also change very much. So once the body starts producing the antibodies against this decoy part of the of the virus, then the new variant comes, which is changing a little bit. It again becomes invisible because the antibodies don't bind there anymore. So, so the, the whole trick would be to find the space on the surface of the spike, which is far away and is perhaps important for the virus uh, when it's performing this, this strange maneuver of transitioning to the post-fusion state, which yeah. is uh, mediating the connection between the virion and the, and the host cell. If we can block that, then the virus cannot enter and it's, it can bind, but it will be swept by the immune system. So this is the whole, whole idea. And we are now working on the simulations to predict what are the good places for that. We actually already published a, a paper about this. And we found several epitopes which um, could be used uh, potentially by the companies which are which are producing the vaccines to produce a new generation of the vaccines. And this method, this approach that you you're proposing, it can actually be applied to many other viruses, right? Actually, it could be applied to any pathogens, basically, right? Because if you have a structure of this protein which you are interested in. And uh, you have some idea from mass spectroscopy, for instance, about the glycans. You can start to model this mm -hmm. and you can predict where the unshielded uh, places on the surface and then maybe uh, devise the constructs for the vaccines, which are uh, only presenting this part, right? Because uh, we don't want, as I said, we don't want to target the super immunogenic decoy uh, sequences. We actually want to cover them, but we want to present something which is uh, more conserved but maybe not, not as exposed. Yeah, yeah. This is amazing. I mean, it's extremely important work. And if it helps with with getting even more efficient vaccines, it, it's, it's incredible. And you've been actually doing this while you're affiliated with two different institutes, right? You are with Max Planck and also with the University of Vienna. Um, yes. So how challenging has it been to to work in like two institutes and so many collaborations, is it is it actually very hard? Or, you know, the fact that you are anyway currently, because of pandemic stuck at home, didn't really make so much difference? I mean, the, the, the fact that I was sitting in this very office for a year, <laughs> <laughs> it didn't make that much of a difference in, in terms of, of working. Uh, before that, when we still could travel normally, it was, of course, a bit challenging because then I was basically 50-50 uh, sharing my time between Frankfurt and Vienna and traveling every two weeks. But it's also a good time. Like uh, changing the environment, I think is very good for, for the thinking. And also working in the train <laughs> is actually great. So how long is the tra train ride from? It's six-ish hours. And you have very good internet and uh, you have no administrative tasks. Nobody's calling you. You can just sit down and do stuff. It's uh, actually very good. Okay, I'm gonna have to believe you on that i'm not sure if i would do so well if i had to 
work from the train. So, okay, I think we covered your like most recent work and now I would like to jump a bit in time and go back to much, much earlier days. Do you remember at what point you started being interested in science? Was it, was it physics? Was it biology? Actually, the very, very beginning, the very, very beginning, I was interested in the Polish philology. <laughs> I was interested in law, so, you know, <laughs> um, we all have to start somewhere. Yeah, so I think this is this was more like a family business because my dad is a professor at the university in, in Krakow mm -hmm. and he's a, a dialectologist. And uh, when I was young, I was like going with the students for the field work. <laughs> and, you know, I, actually, I, I liked it. Dialectology was, was great. And uh, that was initially the idea that I could do that. But then, uh, you know, being re rebellious when you are a teenager or something, but they switch completely to the to the hardcore science, basically to physics, biophysics, and got hooked up by the simulations at some point. Uh, when I was starting the, the studies, there was a new uh, course offered at the university in Krakow where I did my uh, my masters, which was completely new. So they they created biophysics as a subject from okay. from scratch. And it sounded very interesting, very, very new and uh, connecting a bit, bit of biology and, uh, and, and physics. So I, I tried that. And also because it was a first year, they didn't really know how to give this, this course and how to, how to do it. So we were <laughs> attending the uh, chemistry with chemists, mathematics with mathematicians and right. physics with physicists. Okay. And it was hardcore. It was really hardcore and it was pretty intense. But I think it also it was good because it gave us a very good overview and uh, deep, maybe a bit deeper understanding of how these uh, things work. When I when I discovered the molecular simulations, that I was completely hooked up. That was that was it. I really liked that. Your work during your masters, and I think also your PhD that you did in in Warsaw at the Institute of Physics of Polish Academy of Sciences, was it mainly theoretical? Was it entirely theoretical? Like uh, just focus on the simulations? So no, the, the masters. My initial idea was to to connect experiments and uh, and simulations because it's great to do uh, simulations, great to do theory, but it's nice if you can sort of do the check if it's real. Mm -hmm. uh, because sometimes you can really get carried away uh, with all the models, and it's it's good to attach them to something uh, firm. So I, I did my masters, uh, also joint master between experimental and theoretical groups. And so we've been working on the high-pressure crystallography. So the proteins, when you subject them to the high pressure, they partially unfold. Mm -hmm. And this is reversible, and you can actually peek into the folding process. You can like uh, look at the last stages of the folding process. And you have like a diamond uh, anvil. Between the anvil, you put the crystal of the protein, you squeeze it with the screws until you get some crazy pressures. Oh. And you can solve the structure by the X-ray diffraction. You can actually also simulate proteins uh, under high pressure, and so I was trying to do that. Uh, it was challenging. I think we never even published anything out of that. It was uh, difficult. Uh, and maybe that's why I moved on to the pure theory afterwards, which I did in Warsaw with Marek Cieplak at the Academy of Sciences. And yeah, I, I think in the next four years, I was sort of detoxicating from the experiments. <laughs> okay, so you were detoxicating and running a lot of like theory simulations, but that you finished your PhD and you went back to wanting yes. to work in a lab. So I was missing something, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So now 
well, you, you did your PhD and then you decided you want to stay in academia. Did you actually consider any other career path on the way or was it clear for you that you want to do a postdoc? Mm, that was very natural. I think the PhD went pretty well and uh, I thought that, okay, uh, why not try it? It's cool and it, it sort of becomes a hobby. So why change it, you know? And this, this was the motivation that people can have chores, they can have hobbies, right? And if I can uh, be paid for my hobby, this is awesome. Yeah, <laughs> it's the best I want deal. to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so it was clear you want to stay in Dupas Dog, but then were you looking for a lab based biological work or was it just by accident that you found a specific project that really resonated with you i think it was um i, I was i was uh, advised by my peer supervisor to go to some hardcore theory group and just <laughs> continue what i was doing and i think he was quite unhappy that i moved to the uh, experimental biology but i wanted to try let's say to go back to something firm and real and something i can touch so in the phd i was studying the mechanical properties of, of proteins so unfolding and how, how do you pull on the protein what happens yeah. and when i was i was visiting the ist austria um i spoke with Karl Philipp heisenberg he had this uh, project that involved actually the mechanosensing and unfolding of the proteins which are then mediating the interactions between the cells and the whole question like why you know why the tissue is you know is staying together is not falling apart this got me very interested and i thought maybe i can use my knowledge of the proteins and and try to solve some mysteries on this front and i think this was the main motivation and uh, i think i also wanted to do some real experiments again you came to to ist for your postdoc and i think you really jumped to a very deep waters because before you were doing a lot of this like structure-based lab work and now suddenly you were in the lab that well first of all works on zebrafish and an organism I, I don't know if you were actually also using the the fish and then you yeah. <laughs> exactly so suddenly you have to work with a model organism an animal and you have to do a lot of things that are, you know, out of your scope. Suddenly you are in the field of developmental biology. What has been the most challenging in this transition? Yeah, I guess the first year uh, was just understanding what they are talking about. This was like, I didn't understand a thing. <laughs> I mean, maybe not a thing, but it was very difficult to follow uh, group meetings. And so I think this was hard, but this is like learning a bit the vocabulary and then you connect this vocabulary to things that you do in the lab and you yeah. see and it's like, okay, uh, it's hard to understand. And also I think the kitchen, so the working with, with chemicals and uh, I know RNA synthesis, all these things, they were quite manual and I think I had to learn quite a bit. And the pipettes, I mean, this is what I was doing. It was a dual pipette assay. So you have uh, like two micro capillaries mm -hmm. and you can control the pressure. And you can basically grab the cells by these capillaries and put them together and then try to yeah. disattach them to see what is the force. But this is per se extremely this is high fragile precision, experiment. High precision work. Oh yeah. my God. Yeah, yeah. So I was joking at the end of the postdoc because I became like good with the pipettes, but I became a master of the skill that I will never ever use again. <laughs> <laughs> Was it a difficult thing for you to to work 
experimentally because you know of course in experimental work so many things can fail and like so many things can go badly even not by your mistake but just you know the fish don't lay eggs and something is not working like some exactly the chemical or something like this and sometimes it takes several days to get to the point where you can actually get the result and then it doesn't work was it something that was a problem for you was it a new thing for you this was uh, eye-opening i would say uh, to like how much there maybe i'm saying something wrong here but how much the results we are getting and or how much uh, performing of the experiment depends on your your own machine learning mm -hmm. network that you, you get the feeling for the things like if the cells look good on that day if they look bad Sometimes you cannot even say why they look bad, but you know you it's have not going to work. Mm -hmm. You just have the feeling, and this was uh, very eye-opening for me that I was like, okay, so we cannot control everything, Un unlike in the simulations where you can have everything is deterministic. You can go back in time, you can go exactly. forward in time, exactly. you can do everything you want, and here you don't, and you have too many parameters that you cannot control, and this was uh, for sure interesting uh, experience. And also the linearity of making the experiments. If you make a mistake anyway mm -hmm. on the mm -hmm. preparation steps, the whole day is gone. Yeah. Right? So you can yeah. start. You start at seven a.m. and then at three p.m. you are you are starting on the microscope and you mess up something, some small detail, and okay, over. I go for coffee. That's it. So this was this is different. So I think it's it's safe to say that, you know, you gain a bit of appreciation because I guess in your simulations you were also using experimental data, but you just, you sometimes you yeah, don't yeah, realize I mean, how yes. much work goes into it. And work, but also, also like I'm always saying that this is, uh, I finally understand the, what are the error bars, you know, because you get something, some number, and uh, you maybe trust it, yeah. maybe don't trust it. But what it really means, you know, what is the variability why this force is like that? Yeah, I think this this was this was uh, very important to understanding, and also, I think it weighted heavily on my uh, next steps. That now I'm using the experimental data. I'm actually you know trying to even open the raw data mm -hmm. myself and look there and see you know how they did it, and not just trusting that this is this is how it is. You know, because sometimes the details will matter a lot. Yeah, and you know I what I wanted to add that in the simulations you have some scripts. Yeah. that you are preparing and you can always have a copy of the script and if it fails you go back and you just yeah, debug it. it and you run again <laughs> yeah it yeah. would be much faster if we had this chance with our experimental work i would say so <laughs> yeah but now as you said you don't do any experimental work you're just doing the the simulations do you actually think it may change again. Uh, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so you see so, the but, possibility. Uh, but it, yes, but the thing is that I, I stopped doing like a theory per se. I'm only doing the very collaborative projects mm -hmm. uh, with experimentalists. Uh, I think I'm trying to, to at least, you know, talk to them and understand how they are doing it, see the experiment and so on to get a good feeling how we can simulate the same conditions, how we can connect the things. So I think this this, this changed forever uh, in me. That I, I will try to do that. Whether I will do the experiments, I don't know. Maybe some small things. But I think this is good because you, you got the perspective and there's not so many of the biophysicists that actually 
you know, tackle the experimental part themselves and it gives you a bit of a unique view of on, on the collaboration with, with the biologist. Is it important for you to collaborate now more with the experimentalist because you want to to validate your simulations and kind of have a way of knowing if it works? Or is it more about the translational aspect and the applicability of your work? Mm, I think it's a very interesting question. Um, I think I, like very personally, I feel that more, it's, I feel it more rewarding if I can check that my simulation is, is valid. So the validation aspect is, is great. And also that I can actually help you know, other group in yeah. understanding. So, so I think this this merging and um, going like quantitative structural biology aspect of it, I think this is this is great and this has been like driving me for last years. Yeah, I guess this is my my answer to that. So, what are your plans now? Do you plan to remain within the academia and do you do you want to have your own group? Planning is uh, one thing and. Uh, <laughs> Reality is another thing. Of course, sure. But like, if if you ask what I want to, yes, I would like to stay in the academia and I would like to uh, start a group and hopefully connect the experiment with the theory within under one roof. That uh, would be cool. This, mm-hmm. this would be my my goal. Uh, whether it happens, I don't know, because the funnel is narrow and uh, sure. Uh, I, I did the second postdoc, and also I have to be realistic about that. So that at some point it becomes very difficult to to stay. This I don't know. I, I'm I'm definitely fighting. I think I mean, yeah, it is it is harder as the time goes. But on the other hand, I think you are really doing a completely different thing now. So this gives you a bit, yeah, better expertise to start the group. I mean, the accusation sometimes is that I am too, too broad. By the reviewing I mean, you have a very different project. I mean, I can understand, but on the other hand, I think this uh, this should be viewed more as a. It's it's kind of cool that still from all of these projects, you can just take what you learn in the previous group and apply it to another group, and it's still useful in a completely different branch. I mean, you just worked on development, now you're working on you know um, again the structures, and you're working a bit more on in the translational aspect. I think it's cool that your work is so applicable, actually, to to so many different projects. Mm -hmm. Not too many places can host such a group because they are either physics or maybe biophysics or they are experimental biology. And this is, this, this has been, I think, the difficult part that they don't know what to do with such a, such a person. I can understand that, but I, I really hope you, you can find a place. And now there's so much talk about interdisciplinarity Institutes are slowly moving in this direction, but still, as you said, they kind of hope that there will be collaborations between groups and there's not so many interdisciplinary groups per se. It's a bit of a risk, of course, for the Institute, but I think, yeah, I really hope you you can get the place. The whole whole science is a risk. (laughs) Scientific career is a big risk. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So what do you think one should really work on if if they want to go towards becoming a PI except for the research work like from from your perspective now in retrospect what would you say is something that maybe one should focus in addition to research or like pay less attention to and maybe you can Mm -hmm. give advice 
Yeah, I, I think that all the soft skills uh, like negotiation, very good writing, fast writing of the grants, fast writing of, of papers and the writing per se, I think this is the essential skill of, of every everybody that wants to stay in science. And I, I have a feeling this is not uh, emphasized enough. But <laughs> you have yeah. to train. You have to train it. You have to do it a lot. Also, learn how to fail and how to learn from these failures. How to become again faster the next iteration and so on. I think this is this is crucial. What else I could I could say? Supervising others and doing it even early. Uh, I think this is also something which gives you a whole new perspective, which will be then useful uh, in the future when you actually become a, a PI. And there are parts which I personally don't like, but I think they're also important because, for instance, I don't feel very well when I'm teaching. I'm more like a one-to-one -one person. Mm -hmm. I can explain things, but I don't like talking ex cathedra and explaining things to the uh, crowd. Yeah. And uh, this is some, sometimes those fears have to be overcome. And also, I think this is, this is important to jump into the water and and also do these things yeah yeah but there are many 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 soft skills that you you need and uh, you only learn when you are starting to apply for the for the position how many skills you need to know you need to be good in the uh, i know buying uh, computers because you need to explain to the granting agency why you need this cluster and not the other you have to be very good in, in the in your normal trades of course that you you are doing like i know your your software that you want to use and so on this is crucial you need to be able to negotiate effectively. Yeah. You need to be able to convince people to present uh, in a very good way. So there are like countless, uh, countless skills. Also, you know, solving the conflict and uh, working in a sometimes hostile environment. Uh, let's let's be honest. This also happens in science yeah. that the environment is not so friendly, and you have to be sort of tough to to uh, sort of survive it. Yeah. yeah, I think this is important, and I'd like to maybe touch on another thing here which is the networking. I think this is something that maybe at the beginning of our careers we don't realize that it can really change a lot and open a lot of doors. And I'd like to also discuss a bit your involvement in this Polonium Foundation with respect to that, because this is a, an organization that is unifying the, the Polish expats, right, in science. And... You have been involved in this organization, right? So what drove you towards towards getting involved and what experiences did you did you get through your work with them that are actually helpful for your career? Mm -hmm. I felt that this organization is doing a great job because many things that you cannot learn by going somewhere and asking somebody that you don't know anybody, it's much easier if you if you uh, know some co compatriot and then you can access him very informally and ask and it seems that this channel is giving you much more honest answer and uh, mm -hmm. you can also ask about stupid things like buying bread or buying something you, you just are used yeah. to yeah. in some other country or how to do taxes all these things are, are kind of difficult to obtain in the by the official channels so I think this is a great concept behind uh, um, being involved in such a such a community of expats, which are making a global network, and then you can always find somebody that would be helpful. I think I was not as involved as my wife, who was who was basically preparing this uh, database of the Polish expats, and uh, I was merely helping her with that. So <laughs> I, I would not want to <laughs> claim. <laughs> 
<laughs> what is not due, but but I think I, I I sort of saw enough of this environment, really enjoy it and like it, and I think this was a great experience to to know people from uh, many different countries, which are still sharing very similar similar problems. This website, this database that you're mentioning, is called Polonium Network, right? And this serves to just for the people who might be interested in joining it. It basically is supposed to be uh, an easy address book for you to contact someone, maybe at an institute that you are looking into, or or a country that you are considering to move and and to exactly have this a bit informal conversation. From your perspective, as a yeah, as already a very advanced scientist, I would say in comparison to me at least, how much did networking help you? I mean, it's. Uh, I would say it's impossible to go without that. Uh, you have to know people, and you have to also show yourself what you are doing. Not only do it in the quiet lab and stay there. So I think it's absolutely essential to go to the conferences uh, if you can go to conferences, and even if you don't, you cannot go to conferences. At least go online and uh, you know uh, show them your face whenever you can and talk to them and. Uh, convince them that what you're doing is, is cool and you are you're a smart person because then it's it's as you said this is opening many doors opening very co many collaborations because you, you sort of start to get the brand mm -hmm. that what you're doing is, is solid and if somebody is then having some problem like my perspective if somebody has some experimental question they cannot solve they would maybe contact you and ask you if you can help them doing some simulations uh, and this is, this is crucial you also never know who would be uh, in the committee when you are getting hired, right? It's uh, <laughs> brutal, but... <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> but, but it's, it's also really true. true, yeah. So I think this was... Uh, I owe very much, very much to my PhD supervisor who was sending me and others to as many conferences and meetings as possible. Schools, like, I know, four times a year, we were going to places and, and meeting people. And uh, I think this is very important. So for... for those of you who are uh, becoming PIs, I think, do it this way. Let <laughs> the students go and not uh, <laughs> not keep them in the lab all the time because I think this is uh, also benefiting the, the PI in the long run. That they, they know yeah. people, they attract others and uh, you know other topics and new, new collaborations for the whole group, new skills. I think this is extremely important. It's important for the science as well. I think, you know, your recent work is a great example that... So many people can collaborate and produce very quickly, actually, so much data. Because we, we get stuck sometimes in this feeling that in this run for like having higher and higher published data and there's a lot of competition in science, sometimes you get it into your head that, you know, everyone can scoop you and then you will lose your paper and then you will lose your career. But actually the collaborations are very important and cannot be put aside. Otherwise, you're really just hurting yourself because you could get there faster. I think so, yeah. yeah and I think also um, we are maybe at the brink of the change uh, because of the pandemic. I have a feeling that the science became much more open in the last year than was ever before. Whatever was published was getting onto the bioarchive immediately as there was sure. any kind of uh, very preliminary results, very drafty manuscript was already there. Data was uh, being uh, released to the others. 
And I think this is great. And maybe we can keep at least something positive out of this pandemic that, you know, sharing means faster progress and we can just uh, yeah. beat any, prob any problem if we uh, try to be very open and uh, if everybody's trying to be fair, I think we can, we can get, gain a lot from that. Yeah, I think people get lost, you know, there's, of course, your own ego that comes into play. And then you have, of course, as you mentioned, the funding bodies that sometimes the interpretation of of your list of publications is maybe not, not keeping the best of science in mind. You know, it can change people's perspective when they feel like this is the goal instead of thinking about science as the goal and like pushing science for it mm -hmm. as a goal. Yeah, the numbers, the impact factors, right? This is, yeah, this impact is, uh... factor and all. We should move away from this, I think. Okay, let's go now maybe then into improvement in science. So as we said, this system, it maybe needs a bit of update. And as you said, we should be more collaborative in science. Is, is there something else that you you feel strongly that should be improved to to make our lives better or easier or you know to to help either scientific environment or the academia to to be better mm -hmm. so i like one observation i had at IST with was that i really liked what the staff scientists were doing you know and i had the impression that in many Many cases, the postdocs and PhDs are going through the same problems. They are making the same mistakes all, all over again, and they can be easily avoided. If you are doing NO sequencing or you're doing any other experiment, which is very repetitive and it just has to be done with high proficiency and with, by the expert, and then you, you put a bunch of PhD students which don't know how to do it, mm -hmm. they waste time, waste resources, and they do it super slow and uh, make many mistakes. No, they they and, learn uh, through the process. Exactly. Of course, they learn through the process. But I was like thinking, observing the the staff scientists. Wouldn't it be better to professionalize a bit this part? Not rely only on the uh, PhD students to mm -hmm. perform the repetitive tasks, but to have somebody who is really skilled in that. Well, it, it would help with many things. It would help with reproducibility and also save time and money transfer of knowledge within the lab right mm -hmm. because it's the space exactly. and they can teach many people but in the same way so this is again reproducible on the lab scale and i think ex expanding this world would be a very good thing for us also we always lured when we enter the phd that everybody will be a pi but in reality only like less than five percent has a chance to do yeah. this right but many people actually enjoy doing science so for them, this kind of positions, which would give you opportunity to play around and do your hobby and have a permanent position, yeah, without the administrative yeah. chores. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this is something maybe to consider that could be expanded, yeah? I actually, you know, have not been in so many institutes, but to be honest, I, I don't think this is so popular yet. I know that there are facilities. This is already a big improvement that, you know, n now there are people that can help you with the designated parts of your project and they kind of take care of training and stuff. But I haven't really met so many places that, that have stuff scientists. 
Because this is a person that, in general, would be kind of hired by the institute, right? It's not a lab member, yeah. but kind of a bit more institute-based person that has like a permanent position to to support. So, what do you think is the biggest problem in mm. in getting there? Yeah, I don't know. I think that that maybe there was never uh, initiative to do that mm -hmm. because the PIs were sort of carrying it. And I mean, who is carrying is the PhD students and postdocs. Let's be let's be honest, right? Who is yeah. doing the the heavy lifting? The system, I think, it's sort of working. So I think there is no there is never initiative to change mm -hmm. if things are fine, right? Even if it's True. not too great. True. you will not have any revolution right and i think that the, we also haven't reached that, that point that the students are going on strike and not doing the, their jobs so it might be a very slow process to actually get this change to happen ist actually is, is going i think is doing a good job in that they have some staff scientists yeah. there are some staff scientists at the max Planck, which are very respected and mm -hmm. uh, doing really great job and i think it's important to also give them some freedom to have projects on their own because this is what dragged them into the academia in the yeah. first place. And I think it would be great if they can like share it between you know, working for others, but also working on your stuff because then you get extra motivated and you can do much sure. more. But I think creating such positions, it's taking a risk in a way by the institutes to, yeah. to create such positions, right? And yeah, maybe it's, it will change. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are several different models of running institute that are kind of risky and are functioning out there, right? We have the inst some institutes that that try to go by this no application for funding model. So they kind of provide you with the money and you don't have to care about funding. And they are trying to see how the science will move forward mm -hmm. with this. And I think, yeah, some institutes are trying this this format of having the staff scientists. And I think... It is good that there are some changes coming, and I think what you're pointing out is very cool, but it really requires the PIs also to trust this system more. Yes, for sure. Yeah, and I think sure, this, is, yeah. this is something that, that we still have to, yeah, we still have to get there. Yeah, but the same was with the core facilities, right? That True. in the beginning, True. we can see it now in Poland that there are fights it's over starting. the core facilities. It's starting. Yeah, and there are some small wars because people don't want to give up their own uh, precious uh, tool that they acquired some time ago, and they don't want to have it shared. But this already happened in the in the West. Yeah. Yeah, there is a problem of of sharing, you know, with the with people having to pay for the space in the lab to the university and then they have to buy the equipment by themselves and somehow they don't want to share because yeah the money is sparse and but it would be good to see those changes in Poland as well like more on a regular basis not just in a few institutes yeah I mean there are some places which are good right and I guess this is leading by example and if you see that this generates the net gain, the results, yeah. then you are much more likely to, to invest in this kind of uh, thing and risk it, right? Because yeah. not, let's be honest, you are risking something because you are giving up your resources. Exactly. And whether you get back what you gave, this well, is a risk. As you said, science <laughs> is a risky business. And <laughs> yeah, it's always about this, like taking the, the risks and weighing them and deciding into what they want to try to go. 
So let's let's move a bit away from science. And one thing that I think we all struggle with is the life work balance. And I think <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, but you know, let let's be idealistic for a second and let's try to think about it like it exists. I think it makes you enjoy your work more when you have actually outside of academia a bit of a, a relax or a bit of a break. And it can help you being successful, but somehow in our minds, and also there is a bit of a culture that makes you think that it will just make it harder for you to, to move higher on the ladder. So I was mm-hmm. wondering, how do you see this? How do you keep track of, you know, of yourself and how do you make sure that there is some balance? Especially now, because, you know, we either go to work, at least experimentalist, and then we go home, or we work at home, which is even more difficult to, to separate these two. How do, you, how do you deal with it? Yeah, so I have, a, I call it the tripod model of the work-life balance. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm always saying that it has to be like in some, some sort of a harmony and some sort of, uh, it requires some sort of caring about that is to have a family things right, to have a work things right and to have some hobby. Mm-hmm. And if these three things work, then you actually can say you are happy and uh, it gives you some thing of uh, being fulfilled and enjoying what you're doing right and if any of these things starts to malfunction then i have a feeling that oh. uh, the, the others are suffering very quickly too mm-hmm. so i'm trying trying really hard to have this this kind of balance maybe it's not um, easy to do it the, the sharing of the time is probably not fair i guess the work is still getting a bit too much from our lives yeah but this is how it is but at least w- w- with what's left uh, i think it's good to make a dedicated effort to uh, have the other parts, you know, good. Devoting some time uh, for the relationship, for the family, and then having your own thing that you it's only yours. And you can just close your... I mean, at least it, for me, it works like that. I'm a sort of introvert person, and I like to uh, have my own uh, hobby, which I can only be on my own. Mm-hmm. And, you know, get rid of all other distractions, forget about the stress, and then I can feel my batteries uh, charging. Right, so this is how I'm trying. So, what do you do in your me time, for lack of a better term? In my me time, uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm an outdoorsy person, so I'm trying to stay, uh, you know, either go to the mountains for hiking, or I can I try to go climbing, and this is my my thing. Uh, not the not the team sports, but rather yeah. rather individual sports, and competing with myself, <laughs> challenging yourself. Now this is yeah. this is important what you're saying this balance is hard there is a a strong feeling and also sometimes it's it's not even a feeling but we are being told that you have to put more and more work otherwise you will not succeed and this is really one of the things that I think should be the quicker you realize it the better that it's not really true because if you push yourself too much, as you said, the balance is shifted and you don't enjoy any part of your life anymore. And and the work, I think we all do this because we really enjoy science, right? But if you push too much, you also lose this. You lose the spark. And yeah, it's important to keep this in mind. 
yeah, I mean, uh, this experiment for everybody to do is to do what you really like, devote one day, just do it, and then try to solve some problem that you had at work on the next day. And it just goes like that. Like yeah. no problem, right? And then you try to sit for uh, in a week straight and not go anywhere except for eating and peeing and just sit. And then the last day, it's difficult to draw a straight line on the screen. And this is, uh, I think this is, shows you that it's really uh, important to also get like discharged from this. I think there is a lot of internal pressure that we put on ourselves. And especially when things are not working, you have this very counterintuitive feeling that if you put more work, maybe it will work. And there is this guilt maybe that you should have already solved it and you didn't. And when you hear someone telling you like you should actually take a break and it will work, <laughs> you don't feel like it's going to work. It. <laughs> exactly. But I really, I, I hear this over and over and I actually tried this myself and I was surprised. And I think this is a very valuable lesson that you mostly learn it during like your more independent work, like PhD or postdoc. It's important to to keep this in mind that a break can can really solve this. Not more work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And also, like I, I had my best ideas always when I was like physically tired, and my brain started wandering around, mm-hmm. and just you know, I don't know, after a long hike, legs are heavy. You have so many kilometers in your legs. You're going down, and you're like. Oh, wow. Why didn't I think about it before? And this is like, these are this Eureka uh, moments for me that actually happen when I'm tired and I, my conscious brain is not there anymore. And I'm like just shifting, uh, thinking about stuff, right? And th- th- then the good ideas come. Yeah, I agree. But as I said, yeah. it's a lesson that we all have to learn for experience. And I hope the more we talk about it, the more people will try to believe it and, and follow it through. Okay, so let's get to the last part of the interview, which is the cool science and the cool people in science. So one thing that I like to ask my guests is if you could work on anything in the world. And I think with you, it could be a a discussion because you have very broad interests, as you said. What would you like to work on? What is something that is very interesting for you and... If you could, you know, there is no money limitations, you could just go somewhere and do this, what would it be? My dream would be to be able to have a model system that I could clone in the computer, you know? <laughs> I could have exactly the same system uh, experimentally <laughs> and computationally. Okay. And then, you know, this is opening the whole new field because you can do the debugging on both ends, right? Something is not working. Then you can debug the experiment or you can debug the, the oh, model. This would be really and cool. <laughs> this, I, I, I'm really hoping that one day it will happen that you will be able to start very small and start, with, I don't know, part of the membrane with one protein in it and, you know, work on both ends until you really converge on everything, really understand this part, right? You just know what's happening there. Then you can modify and you can complicate and so on. There are some some initiatives about modeling the cell behavior, right? That are international. Yes. So it's going to this direction. It would be really cool. I mean, organism is like way, 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 way ahead of it. 
Yeah, but I mean, this is yeah, no this way, is right? A cool, this is a cool idea and cool science, really. I agree. So the other thing I like to ask is, if you could have a chance to, to talk to someone that is either currently living or has already passed away, a scientist or someone who inspires you, who would you like to talk to? I have to say that uh, I, I was very lucky in my career. I met really great guys and I had my I have my mentors around in a way. So I don't have this, this kind of craving that I, there was some somebody in the mm -hmm. past that you know would open the door for me. I think we should appreciate more the people that we have around yeah. and maybe not uh, dream about some unachievable mm -hmm. conversations, but just try to focus on what we have and try to extract the best sides of these people that we have around because everybody has of course some some issues but also there, there are so uh, great people with a great approach to life great approach to science and it's sometimes just look at it from this perspective that okay this guy is really good at that can i can i maybe if not copy but at least learn something from him how he's doing that how he's managing the people in the group or how he's managing the network or these things i think this is uh, we are not appreciating it enough that sometimes it's enough to just look around, have your mentors everywhere around you if you want. So do you think in the current age, because of the, you know, the online availability of people, it's actually easier to, to reach out to, you know, someone that, that you kind of look up to and, or do you think it is still, it still can be tricky? How do you see this? I think, unfortunately, in the pandemic, it's a bit harder mm -hmm. to establish new relationships. If you know somebody already, uh, I think it, it made it maybe even easier to communicate and um, push the projects together and uh, talk about science and discuss stuff. I think th the barrier has been lowered yeah. and it's, it's a bit easier to yeah. uh, start, you know, Zoom and then you, you immediately have an answer or, I don't know, I have many people on WhatsApp, which I, we are just talking uh, you know, exchanging screenshots, like, okay, this makes sense, doesn't make sense, yes, no. And this really is great. But I have a feeling it's difficult yeah. uh, to, to meet somebody, complete, a complete stranger, and just strike a conversation and, and then start a new project. So uh, there are two sides to it. I agree. I agree. All right. I think we have it all. So I would like to thank you very much for for joining me on the podcast and for sharing your story and i really appreciate it and i wish you all the best for all your future projects and all your plans and yeah thanks thank you so much for having me